Tonight we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 6 as continuing through this study. Uh, Pastor Wade has entitled this whole study Walking in Wisdom. And tonight, uh, I've entitled this one that we're going to be looking at tonight, Warnings to Consider. Warnings to Consider. There are several, several different warnings that are given in this passage. Um, and I'm sure Wade has gone over this. I'm sure in the introduction, at the beginning, he went over this. But I want to read you something from Warren Wearsby that's just a good reminder about Proverbs and how to interpret and what we need to think about when studying Proverbs. Warren Wearsby said, Proverbs are generalizations about life and not necessarily promises for us to claim, although there are some great promises found in the book of Proverbs. The basic requirement for understanding and applying these Proverbs is the fear of the Lord, chapter 1, verse 7, and a willingness to obey. The aim of the book is to give the godly person skill in human relationships and endeavors. This begins with submission to the Lord. It is dangerous to lay hold of one or two statements in Proverbs, but ignore the total message of the book. Although we can find examples of exceptions to some of the Proverbs, this does not minimize the lesson they contain. For example, not all godly people live long lives, which it says in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. It's a generalization. Or do all godly people become wealthy? Chapter 3, verse 10. Again, it's a generalization. Uh, In some parts of the world, believers are dying from famine and poverty. But generally speaking, those who obey God do not ruin their bodies or waste their substance. The book of Proverbs summons us to understand and apply all of God's revealed wisdom for all of life. So tonight we're going to look at some generalizations as well, and uh, we'll talk about some of these things as we go through. But there are several things we need to consider uh, on your outline there. First, it's consider those who are entangled. Next, we're going to talk about considering the sluggard, and then considering the ant. He gives a great example, a great analogy about the ant in comparison to the sluggard. And then finally, consider the wicked man. And and on those same lines, he talks about seven things that God hates. So we're going to look at those things tonight. First of all is consider the entangled. Look at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth. Verse 3, Do this then, my son, and deliver yourself, since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, humble yourself, and importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Let's pray tonight before we get into this passage. Father, I thank you for this time tonight, Lord. We do thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for these, Lord, these, uh, these warnings that we are to heed from this passage, Lord. We thank you for the wisdom of Solomon, Lord. We thank you for your inspired word that you have given us. Lord, we thank you that you have given us all that we need for life and godliness. Father, I pray that tonight as we study this, Lord, that we will learn something new about you and new about ourselves. Lord, I pray that we would apply it to our lives, Lord, and be changed. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So these first five verses, first of all, we need to consider those who are entangled. Consider the entangled. Verses 1 and 2, we see the warning. Verse 1 says, my son, if you've become, again, this is Solomon speaking to his son trying to give wisdom to his son. My son, if you have become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger. If you have been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth. Then he goes on to tell him what you are to do. So blank number one there, becoming surety is the idea to become legally liable for another person's debt in the case of their default. In other words, it's, it's being at the, at the, at the uh, mercy of the financial situation of a neighbor. If you enter into a Uh, a a covenant with them if you enter into a financial agreement with them it's taking on a financial obligation of your neighbor in case they default 
is the idea here. It's the, again, the idea of being entangled by someone else, being at the mercy of another person's decisions uh, and, and whatever happens in their life. I think about someone being entangled. I was reading, I'm reading the Chronological Bible this year, and a couple of uh, months ago I was reading about Absalom. I don't know if you remember the story of Absalom, David's son, but there was a point in time when Absalom decided he was going to orchestrate a coup over his father. He was going to take over the kingdom. He was going to become king. He started rallying people. He started manipulating people to follow him. Uh, and eventually what happened is there was a war between David's men and between Absalom's men. And during this war, God's anointed, their, their, David's men routed Absalom's men. And, and Absalom was trying to escape. David had already told his men, if you catch my son, don't hurt him. Uh, as upset as he was about everything, it was still his son. He didn't want him harmed. And the Bible tells us that Absalom was on a mule, and he, he saw David's men coming, and he took off. And as he was going, I don't know if you remember this story, but it said Absalom had long, beautiful hair, and he was going underneath a tree, and his hair got tangled in the tree, and the mule kept going, and he was hanging there by his hair. And he was completely at the mercy of those that were to harm him. And ultimately what happened is, even though David had commanded his men not to harm him, one of his men came up and, and ran a spear through him and killed Absalom. And you think about this idea of being entangled. In that situation, Absalom was entangled. And as a result of his entanglement, he was completely at the mercy of those around him. And that's, again, the idea here of being entangled, becoming a surety, becoming surety, becoming legally liable for another person's financial situation. Now, this idea of becoming surety is not, this next blank here, is not always condemned in Scripture, but it is not a wise practice. It's not always wrong, nor has a prohibition been given against this or even lending for that case. Psalm chapter 112, verse 5 says, It is well with a man who is gracious and lends. Becoming a surety is not always condemned as long as it is not more than a person can cover or more than a person is willing to cover. Remember, again, this is a caution to the young and to the naive. He's telling his son, don't hastily jump into something that you're not able to take care of, that you're not able to finish, is what he is telling him. And again, here he says, if you become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for strangers, if you have been snared with the words of your mouth. So this is either through a, a binding contract that's been signed or even through a verbal contract. He's telling if you've been snared by either one of these, here's what you are to do. So he talks here either through signing or through verbal. And, you know, God has given us a great gift of the power of speech, the, the, the tongue, the ability to speak, the ability to, to use words to communicate with each other. And the tongue used appropriately can bring great blessing and it can also bring great cursing. Proverbs 18.21 tells us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. I always think about the emperors when they, someone would stand before them and their life was in their hands. In the, in the power of their tongue, they could say, kill him or let him live. Power, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Uh, I think of the adulterous woman. Look in uh, chapter 7 of Proverbs, next chapter over. Look at verse 11. Talking about the adulterous woman, it says, she is boisterous and rebellious. She is, with her, with her mouth, she is boisterous. The way she speaks, she is boisterous and rebellious. Look at verses 18 through 22. This is the way that she's going to seduce this young man. Verse 18, she tells him, Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. Again, she's with her words. She's, she's telling him, Don't worry about my husband. He's gone. He's not going to harm you. Verse 20, He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. Now look at verse 21. With her many persuasions, she entices him. 
With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool. Look back at chapter 5, verses 3 through 7. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. I want you to know something about an adulteress is the, the primary way she seduces is with her words. That's what it says here. Her, her, her lips drip honey, smoother than oil is her speech, verse 4, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. Now look at verse 7. Now then, my sons, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. So on one hand, you have an adulterous woman who's trying to destroy with her mouth. And on the other hand, you have a father here saying, listen to my words. They're words of life. They're words of truth. They're words that will not ensnare you. They're words that will help you. Look at verses 11 through 13. After the young man has fallen to the adulterous woman, verse 11, and you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how I have hated instruction. And my heart has spurned reproof. Verse 13, I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to their instructions. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Think of the words of the religious leaders who whipped a crowd into a frenzy who, who just a short time earlier were saying, Hosanna unto Jesus. And then just a short time later, they were screaming, crucify him as a result of the words that the religious leaders incited the, the, a, a mob of people against Jesus with. Think of the words of the apostles as they spoke words of life to people, words that brought healing, words that brought salvation to those who believed. The words of Jesus to the woman at the well, the, or to the adulterous woman, words of, of healing and words of truth and the reality that he spoke to them that they, regardless of what they had done, they could be forgiven. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Our tongues are powerful instruments of life or death. They are instruments that can ensnare us coming into a contract, coming into a verbal agreement that we shouldn't come into. They're, words, they're, they're instruments that could ensnare us. So we've got to be careful to heed the warning that is found in this passage in regard to entering into a financial obligation lightly. So we know that it, it is not being surety, entering into this type of agreement is not always condemned in Scripture. However, it is condemned when the following conditions exist. Number one, when the one guaranteeing doesn't have the means to pay in case of default. In other words, it would be complete folly. It would be absolute disaster if I co-signed for someone who's buying a million-dollar home. Absolutely no way. If, if they defaulted, I would default. There's nothing I could do. I would be ruined along with them. So if the person signing doesn't have the means to pay, it's, it's condemned. It's wrong. It's sin. It puts your family at risk. It puts you at risk. Number two. It's condemned if there is a possibility of driving a friendship apart. In other words, if you're going to enter into a risky financial agreement with a friend with a great probability that that's going to end up in a, in a loss, it could drive a friendship apart. We know that's not God's desire. It's condemned. Number three, when helping someone acquire something that is not God's will for them. If I help someone acquire something that's morally wrong for them, that's sin. That's wrong. It's condemned. I shouldn't enter into that agreement. Number four, if I'm encouraging the one borrowing to also become overly indebted, then I'm allowing them, I'm helping them get into something that they cannot pay. I'm setting them up for disaster and setting myself up for disaster. And number five, it's condemned when the character of the person borrowing is questionable. Is questionable. 
before we enter into something like this, financially or really anything in life, we need to, before we enter into an agreement with someone, we need to look at their character. Are they reckless? Will they take this obligation lightly because they know that if they default, I'm there for them? Now think about back when I was in high school, I had some friends who had uh, really nice cars that their parents had bought for them. And they drove those cars as hard as they possibly could. They didn't care if they got beat up. They didn't care what happened to them because they didn't pay for them. On the other hand, I had friends who had absolute hoopties, absolute clunkers, but they washed them about twice a week. They waxed them. They cleaned them out. They changed the oil regularly because they worked hard and they paid for them. They, they, were, not, they were not taking that obligation lightly. They, were, they, they weren't reckless in what they were doing. And again, when we look at this situation, when you look at the character of the person borrowing it, they have a questionable character. If so, we don't need to enter into that obligation with them. It is condemned in those situations. But what about those? That's verses 1 and 2, but verses 3 through 5 is when he tells them the solution. If you are entangled, here's what you do. Look what he says in verse 3. Do this then, my son. Deliver yourself. Since you have come into the hand of your neighbor. That's strong language. You've come into the hand of your neighbor. You are, you are at the mercy of him. You have allowed yourself to come into his hand, and whatever happens with him is going to happen with you. You're at his mercy. Here's what you do. Verse 3. Go humble yourself. Importune your neighbor. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hunter's hand and a bird from the hand of the fowler. So solution number one, verse three, deliver yourself. Do what you have to do to get out of it. Deliver yourself. Number two, he says here, humble yourself. In other words, don't let pride get in the way of you getting out of something that could ultimately destroy you, that could harm you, that could harm your family. Don't allow that to happen. And then number three, be relentless. Be relentless. He says, deliver yourself like an animal. Give no sleep to your eyes. Don't rest until you've delivered yourself from this financial bad obligation. Be relentless. I think about Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 9, when Jesus is talking about prayer. And he talks about the man who is, it's middle of the night, and a friend comes in from a long journey, and he's disgraced because he didn't have any bread to give the guy. The guy had been, evidently been traveling for a long, a long time, and he wanted to give him bread. Uh, and, and he didn't have any to give him, so he, he gets up at midnight, goes over and knocks on his neighbor's door and says, uh, a friend of mine is coming from a long journey. Give me some bread to feed him. I'll pay you back. And the neighbor says, I've already locked the door. I'm asleep. My kids are asleep. Go away. I'll, I'll give you some in the morning. And it says the man just persistent, keeps banging on the door, keeps banging on the door. Just it literally is overly annoying until the Bible says there, Jesus says, the guy gets up and gives him bread, not because he's his friend, but because he's annoying him, basically. In other words, to get him to go away so he can sleep, I'm just going to give this guy some bread. And that's kind of the idea here, the idea of being relentless. Do what you have to do until you can get out of that obligation that could destroy you, that could harm you. So there's the solution according to Solomon. Humble yourself, deliver yourself, beg if you have to, plead, but do what you have to do to get out of that, that entanglement. And let me suggest here in the next part is a better way. Number one, give generously if that is in your power. That's what the Bible says. Give generously if that is in your power. Luke 6.35, Jesus said, for example, to lend, expecting nothing in return. Number two, give when appropriate. It's, you know, it's not always appropriate to give. Uh, we, uh, you know, Jerry Ann, I'm sure y'all dealt with this a lot, and we dealt with this. There's times when we lived in East Africa, it just was not appropriate for us to give to people. There were other times when it was perfectly appropriate. And did y'all ever figure out what, when that was? That's a hard situation. I mean, there was abject poverty all around a difficult situation but there are times when 
there are legitimate needs, and there are other times when there are not legitimate needs, and they're just someone who's a con man. We had a guy that came and banged on our gate in Uganda, and I opened the gate, and I, I sh- this guy should have been a Broadway actor. He whipped up tears. He gave us a story. And, I mean, I almost started crying. And I don't cry very often. I almost started crying. And I gave the guy some money. And at our next team meeting, all the missionaries who lived in Kampala, we got to talking, and we, it dawned on us, this guy had come to every one of our homes. So we thought, this, this guy made a lot of money that day. And so we started asking some of our Ugandan friends, and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, Bosco, he is the biggest con man in town. And every one of us had just fallen for it. I mean, we had just complete. So there are times when it's not appropriate to give. There are times when it is, it's just difficult to know when to give. And that's why the next point on there is this. Be led by the Spirit. I know that may sound overly mystical, and I don't mean for it to, to but that's all I could come up with when we lived in East Africa was in that moment, in that situation, just pray a prayer and say, Lord, show me what I need to do here. And I'm sure there were times that we made big mistakes. And I'm sure there were times that we were dead on. But, but a better way is, is to give. I'm going to read this from a commentary to sum up these few verses. It says, this text may be accepted as a distinct exhortation to ourselves. Have nothing to do with suretyship. If you can afford to give anything, give it. And there let the matter end. You have no right to pledge what you do not possess. There are cases in which the temptation is very strong to help, but there must be no yielding. Give. Give liberally if you can. Give heartily and give promptly, but never come under enslaving conditions. I think that's a good way to sum this up. So, first of all, we are to consider the entangled in this passage. Number two, we are to consider the sluggard. He moves into a different, uh, a different topic here. Verse 6. He says, go to, well, I'll tell you what, let's do verses 9 through 11 first, and then we'll do, uh, yeah, then we'll do verses 6 through 8. So verse 9 says, how long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come upon you like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. So the warning here, number one is this, oversleep is an abuse of a great blessing. How many of you like to sleep? I love to sleep. I mean, I really do. I love to sleep probably too much. I really enjoy sleeping, and I've especially enjoyed sleeping more since we've had two small children. I appreciate sleep more. Uh, you know, I, I had a, uh, a friend of mine who was uh, coming back from overseas, and he told this story. He said he was on the plane, and he decided he was going to take, he had never taken it before, but he took like three Ambien, sleep medicine. He was like, I just want to really crash on this flight. He didn't know how strong they were. He took three of them, and he says... He woke up, it was about a 12-hour flight. He says he woke up, and they were there. He had, I mean, he had been out for 12 hours straight, sit, you know, sitting there like this, you know, for 12 hours. So I imagine his neck and back and everything's hurting. But he'd been out for that long, and he said he woke up, and he started tasting something funny. He said he reached way back in his mouth and pulled out this partially di- digested piece of airplane chicken. And he asked his wife, he's like, what? How did that get in my mouth? And she said, you don't remember waking up in the middle of the night and eating a meal? He, I mean, he had, no, he had no recollection of that at all. But when I talk about oversleeping here, I'm not talking about when someone is sick or when they're medicated. This is just oversleeping for the sake of oversleeping. This is oversleeping for the purpose of being lazy. I also had a similar thing happen to me kind of like that. Uh, one Thanksgiving, Kay and I were going to my parents' house to eat, and uh, I had a headache. I asked her to give me some aspirin, and she gave me two little round white aspirin. Aspirin. And we were midway through the meal an hour later, and I had this wall come over me you know this just like something wasn't right I mean it's like I was hearing things and okay I said I gotta go to sleep so I just quit in the middle of my meal and went laid on my parents couch and was out she had to drive me home I mean it was 
So the next day we got to talking about it, and she had given me two Dramamine rather than two aspirin. So you've got to watch her. She is, she'll, she'll get you. But that's not the point here. Oversleep in terms of just oversleeping out of extreme laziness is the idea here. Oversleep is an abuse of a great blessing. And this is true both, both physically and spiritually. For example, physically, it's the idea of the farmer who it's harvest time, the crops are ready, and rather than going to get them, he just says, I'm just going to sleep, just going to sleep. And he just allows the crops to die. And ultimately, it brings about his poverty. That is the idea here. But spiritually, also, I think there's a principle here. Men who rest spiritually will become destitute and impoverished. Men who just reject the idea or who neglect the the reading of Scripture, reject praying, they'll, they'll come to destitution. They'll come to spiritual poverty. R.C. Sproul said this. He said, here then is the real problem of our negligence. We fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, not so much because it is dull and boring, but because it is work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we are lazy spiritually. Well, that's convicting because there's so many times I miss reading my Bible and that's dead on. It's not because it's just because I'm lazy. It's because I don't want to do it. It's hard work spiritual poverty being spiritually impoverished brought about by spiritual laziness look at verse 10 a little sleep a little slumber a little folding of the hands to rest a little sleep is literally a few sleeps a few sleeps is a slow progression it's kind of the idea of just hitting the snooze button a few times in the morning i don't really hit the button go back hit the button go back to sleep and and you know, when I do that, when that happens, I realize after I wake up, I just wasted two hours of good sleep hitting the snooze button every 10 minutes rather than just sleeping, you know. But it's the idea here of a little, a, a few sleeps. A little sleep is literally a few sleeps. It's the idea of, of, of again, pushing that snooze button over and over again uh, when there are things to be urgently accomplished. That's the idea here. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Again, a subtle, slow thing. You know, the sluggard here doesn't say, well, I'm not going to get a job. I'm just going to sleep. No, they, they, they say something along the lines of, I'll just get around to it later. I'll get around to it later. I'll get around to it later. I'll get around to it later. And over time, that later becomes a long time, and eventually their poverty comes in like a vagabond. It comes in like an armed man. It destroys them. And that's the result. The result of the sluggard's inactivity is poverty. Now, remember what we said, generalizations. It doesn't mean that everyone who lives in poverty is lazy. It absolutely does not mean that. I'm going to illustrate this with another Africa example. We lived near a rock quarry, quarry when we were in Kampala, Uganda. And it's not the rock quarry you think of here. This is where people get there with hammers and they just break rocks up all day, 12, 15 hours a day. I remember seeing an old lady. She was probably in her late 60s, early 70s, had a baby hanging on her back. And all day long in the heat of the sun, she was breaking up rocks with a, with a hammer she had made for, for 12, 15 hours. And she was making about a dollar a day. She was in abject poverty, but she was by no means lazy. She was a hard worker. So remember, generalizations here. The point is, poverty is usually brought about by laziness. It's usually brought about by being a sluggard. And that is the point here. So then he moves into a different example, and that is this. He tells his son, here's the sluggard, but I want you to look at a different example in nature, and that is the example of the ant. So consider the ant. Look at verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Observe her ways and be wise. Having no chief, officer or ruler, uh, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. You know, we can learn a lot from nature, 
we can learn a lot from nature. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 tells us, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. We can see the marks of the creator in his creation. Other examples of looking to God's revelation in nature are, uh, you look at Psalm chapter 19, where it talks about the heavens declare the glory of God. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Nature can teach us something about God. Now, it's not the complete revelation by any means. God has given us his word. He has given us his son. But there are things we can learn from nature. And in here, in this situation, in this passage, we get to learn from the ant. Get to learn from the ant. Now, how many times have you stepped on an ant or just flicked an ant away? I've killed a lot of ants in my lifetime. In fact, my wife absolutely hates ants. Whenever there's any type of ant, I have to drop what I'm doing and go kill it. I have to go kill it with, you know, if there's a mound, I have to go kill that. I've killed lots of ants in my life. Flicked many away, flicked many off of myself. I don't like ants. Yet here... We are told to get wisdom from the ant. Consider her ways, Solomon says here. It's as if Solomon is trying to shame the sluggard. He's saying, you are God's pinnacle of creation. You, you are man. You've been created in the image of God, yet you are lazy. You're a sluggard. So look at the ant. Look at this lowly creature that you step on, that you thump off yourself, and learn from her. So here are some lessons we get from it. Verse 8. She prepares her food in the summer, gathers her provision in the harvest number one prepare for the future prepare for the future we learn that from the ant but i want to say this but we should not set our hope on our preparations our everything that we live for and that we hope for shouldn't be based upon material things that we've set aside for the future go read matthew chapter 6 and and it talks about that matthew chapter 6 uh, verses 25 to 34 where jesus tells uh he tells he tells in in this passage that we are not to seek after uh, the things of this world but we're to seek first the kingdom of god uh he tells them don't worry about clothing don't worry about food don't worry about all these things but seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you again that's not a prescription for not working or not just you know letting god take care of you it's it's not at all that's not what jesus is saying there but what he's saying is don't set your hope on future riches don't worry about these things god's going to take care of his children psalm chapter 62 verse 10 it says, if riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Again, it's easy to be ensnared by these things. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. So we prepare for the future. Number two, be a self-starter. Look at verse 7. Which having no chief officer or ruler prepares her food in the summer. Again, it's the idea of being a self-starter. And just a couple other observations about ants. They work together. They help each other. And they don't waste time. You never, I mean, it's rare that you see an ant just sitting there. They're always moving. I mean, I watch an ant and I wonder, what are they doing? They just go back and forth. Like, you know, it's just kind of like, what are they doing? But they don't waste time. They're busy. So we see a lesson from creation. Consider the ant. So then he shifts gears here. He shifts from the one who does himself harm through laziness to one who does other people harm. Verses 12 through 15, he goes from the inactive to the very active, but they're very active for purposes of evil. Look at verses 12 through 15. A worthless person, a wicked man, is the one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Therefore, his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly, he will be broken, and there will be no healing. 
So next, we are to consider the wicked man or consider the worthless man, as it calls him here. Now, this is interesting. The word for worthless there in the Hebrew language is literally the word Belial. Did any of you recognize that word, Belial? That's the, that's the same word that is used in 2 Corinthians 6.15 when, when, when Paul says, what fellowship does Christ have with Belial? This word Belial later became, a, it later came to mean it be a personal name of Satan. But in the Hebrew language, it literally means a worthless person. Or some people have said it means destroyer. The etymology of this word is not completely known, but it could mean destroyer. It could mean one who swallows up. The point being here, this word that was used here for a worthless person was strong language saying this is a bad dude. This isn't a good man. This is a wicked, good-for-nothing, worthless man is the idea here. So what are the, wor- uh, what are the marks of a wicked person? Number one, it says in verse 12, a worthless person a, person, a wicked man is one who walks with a perverse mouth. So number one is a perverse mouth or a perverse tongue. It's the idea of crooked or distorted. And it's typical of Satan. Think about the fall of man. How did he tempt Eve? How did he tempt Adam? He took the word of God and what did he do? He distorted it. He twisted it. He said, has God said this? Has God said that? Has God said this? He twisted what God had said into what he wanted them to believe God had said. And ultimately, he, it, mankind was led into sin. Perverse tongue is a mark of a wicked person. Number two, deception. Look at verse 13. Who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers. So someone who is a person of deception, who tries to get other people involved in his deception through winking or through uh, the, all of these different types of things that are mentioned here. Number three, he, he says a mark of, these, of a wicked person is he is an inventor of evil. Look at verse 14. Who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife. Continually devises evil. Have you ever known someone who just is looking for new sin to get into? I mean, they're looking for the, I mean, people can get really creative. People can get really creative in the way they sin. And that's the idea here. Someone who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, they look for evil they look to invent evil they look for things that they can take to the next level in their sin and in their immorality number four the fourth mark is discord look at verse 14 who spreads strife and this is one of the things we're going to look at in the next section the seven things that god hates and that's why i think this these verses here and then verses 16 through 19 i think they're linked together because they're all marks of a wicked man they're all marks of a perverse man Seventh thing God hates, look in verse uh, 19, the very last part of it, the one who spreads strife among brothers, who spreads discord. So these are linked right here. So what are, what is the lot of the wicked person? The marks of the wicked person are a perverse mouth, deception, they're inventors of evil, they run to evil, they, they're people of discord, but what is their lot? Look at verse 15. Therefore, their calamity will come suddenly, Instantly, he will be broken and there will be no healing. So the lot of the wicked person is swift judgment and destruction. Judgment is sure for the evil man. One thing we can be sure of is if someone dies apart from Christ, they will be judged. All men will be judged, but they will be judged according to what they have done and they will be punished for what they have done. Swift judgment. Swift destruction. But aren't you glad that God has... Listen, 
we may, we may not all have been, before we came to know Christ, we may not all have been this wicked person in the sense of looking for evil, trying to invent evil, sowing discord, doing this and that. We may not have been that. Some of us may have been. But listen, we were all sinful. We are all sinful. We all have done things against the, the character and nature of God. We have all offended a holy God. And I'm glad when I read a passage about this wicked man to know that this wicked man right here can be saved, can be forgiven through what Christ has done on the cross. He's our only hope. He's all we have. There's nothing we can do to reconcile ourselves to a perfectly holy God except believe and trust in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross, repent of our sins, yield our life to him. So the lot of the wicked, unrepentant person is swift judgment and destruction. Continuing on, consider the wicked man. Let's look at the seven things that God hates. Look at verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Look at what the first one is. Haughty eyes. Arrogance. First thing on this list is arrogance. Literally, the idea here is eyes rising. It's looking above other people. It's, it's, it's kind of holding our nose above other people. Looking, looking, I guess in a sense, looking down on others as well, I guess would be what we would say nowadays. Looking down on someone. Thinking you are better than them is the idea here. Proverbs 17.5 always scares me to death. It says, he who mocks the poor taunts his maker. Boy, that's scary to me. To think about people in the world who mock poverty, mock those who are poor. Because the Bible says when we do that, we mock God. And that's a scary thing to me. That's a scary thing to think of the fact that if I mock someone who is poor, that I'm mocking God. It's the idea of arrogance here. Looking down upon someone for their color, for example. Thinking you're better than someone because you have a different skin color than they do. Looking down upon someone because of your socioeconomic condition, because you have more money than them. Looking down upon someone because they have a malady. We were in uh, Wendy's the other day and I saw a, a guy in a wheelchair that had just some terrible, some terrible uh, health conditions. He was in a wheelchair and his, his body was twisted and crooked. And it, it just dawned on me, and, I, and for whatever reason, that moment I had compassion because the reality is that guy is created in the image of God. He's, an, he's the object of God's love, the object of God's grace. He died for him. For us to look down upon others because of skin color, money, condition, or whatever is one of the things that's an abomination to God, the Bible says here. An abomination. God hates it. It says that. It, he hates it. It's an abomination to him. How dare we who have been forgiven based upon nothing we have done, nothing that we have to merit his forgiveness, how dare we who have been forgiven discriminate and look down upon others who are created in the image of God? It's an abomination to God. It's one of the seven things that he hates. Number two is a lying tongue. Verse 17, haughty eyes, a lying tongue. A lying tongue is antithetical to the nature of God. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. Jesus is the truth. The Holy Spirit is referred to as the spirit of truth in John 15, 26. Lying tongue, being a liar, is completely against the nature of God. It's antithetical to Scripture. 2 Corinthians 6, 7 says, in the word of truth. The Bible is called the word of truth. Of truth, John 17, 7. Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. 
So a lying tongue is opposite the nature of God. However, it's completely in line with the nature of Satan. Completely in line with the nature of Satan. John chapter 8, verse 44. Flip over there. It says, uh, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When we lie, we're being like Satan. When we lie, we're not being like God. We're being like Satan. There's no lie in God, and there's no truth in Satan. He is the father of lies. He is a liar, and he is the father of lies. So God detests, he hates a lying tongue. It's an abomination to him. Number three, says that he hates murderers, those who murder. And hands that shed innocent blood, it says in verse 17. This is the idea of one who is prone to violence to the point of taking a life. It's a lack of control over anger and a lack of regard for human life that are in view here. God detests that. It's an abomination to him. And skip the next one there and look, look down. The next one is those who join evil plans. Verse 18. We're going to come back to the, to the one before that. Verse 18. A heart that devises wicked plans. So the next point there is he, he uh, one of the things God hates is those who join evil plans. These are the people who see an opportunity to do wrong, not as an opportunity to walk away, but as a golden opportunity to do wrong. These are people who see it and think, I can sin now. This is a great opportunity. Those people over there are stealing something. I'm going to go. That's a great opportunity to go steal. These people are doing this. That's a great opportunity to go get involved here. It's the idea here. People who run to evil, those who join evil plans. It's an abomination. God hates it. Next is a false witness. These are people who attempt to destroy justice, while the next point are people who attempt to destroy relationships. Next one is those who spread strife. Verse 19, a false witness God hates who utter lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. So here we have one who's perverting justice, and then we have one who's destroying relationships. You ever been around people who their goal is just to destroy relationships? They don't have friends so they're going to destroy other people who do have friends. They don't have deep relationships, so they're going to seek to spread strife among those. They just kind of talk behind one's back, talk behind this person's back, seek to separate. The Bible says God hates that. It's an abomination to him. So God hates all of these abominable things because, look back at the blank that I didn't give you, because here is the point of it. All of this comes right in the middle of these seven things is this, a wicked heart. Right in the middle of this list is the heart because the issue behind a lying tongue, the issue behind murder, the issue behind joining evil plans, the issue behind false witnesses, the issue behind those who spread strife is a heart that is bad, a heart that is dirty, a heart that is wicked. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 says this. It's Jesus said, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Where does a lying tongue come from? It is a product of something that is wrong with the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 15, 18 through 19, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, fornication, thefts, false witness, slanders. You know, we can put all kinds of laws in place to reform people, but the bottom line is until someone's heart is reformed, it doesn't really matter. The heart is the problem. 
The heart is the problem. Luke 6.45, the good man out of the treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth what is evil, for the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. And then Jeremiah 17.9, for the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I always cringe when people say, I just follow my heart in life. I just follow my heart. Listen, our heart's going to lead us to destruction because our heart is wicked and evil and desperately sick. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what it teaches. So God hates all of these things. All of these things go against the nature of God. And in our case, the problem is not the outward issue of what we're doing. The, the problem is the inward condition of our heart that leads us to do all of these things that are wrong. So consider the wicked man. Consider the seven things that God hates. They're all against the nature of God. All of these things are a product of a dirty heart. And, you know, again, so grateful for the fact that God has made a way that our heart can be cleaned. He can give us a new heart. He can give us a new purpose in life through what he has done on the cross. And I'm very grateful for salvation, grateful for what he has done for us. So we need to consider all of these warnings. Walking in wisdom, we need to consider those who have become entangled. Ways to get out of that, what we need to do to avoid that. We need to consider the sluggard. We don't need to be like him. We need to consider the ant. We need to learn from the ant. We need to consider the wicked man and the issue at hand in the, the life of the wicked man, his dirty heart. I just want to, you know, I'm grateful for the word of God. It truly is, and we hear Wade say this all the time, it's a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. And I'm grateful for the word of God, but we must heed its warning. You know, it's, it's, if we have Bibles and never read them, we're really no different than that lost people group in India that has no Bible in their language at all. We can, we can do like James. We can be hearers of the word, but if we're not effectual doers of the word, then it's of no value to us. We know some stuff, but it's not changing us. We're not obeying it. We're not heeding its instructions. Proverbs 8.33 says, Heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Proverbs 10.17 says, He is on the path of life who heeds instructions. So let us take the things that Solomon was trying to teach his son here and let's ask God to apply them to our lives and into our hearts and to protect us and to change us and to mold us and to make him make, make us more like him in all that we do. Amen.